0: Why don't we start with a prayer and let's just say a prayer for the, all the people who, whose lives were taken in Paris yesterday, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Mm-hmm. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Amen. Our Lady of Grace, amen. Us and, the Holy Spirit, amen. and I know that some of you will not be able to join us, but for those of of you who are able to stay for mass today at three forty-five, we'll say. Uh, mass with that in, with intention for the repose of the soul and the consolation of families, the many people who, who lost their lives yesterday. And for peace and safety and justice in our society. Uh, my name is Father Thomas Joseph White, and it's a wonderful joy to be with you and uh, to see such a wonderful turnout of people who want to hear something about St. Thomas Aquinas on the Incarnation. Uh, I'm from Washington D I'm introducing myself I'm from Washington D C and I'm the director of the Thomistic Institute. Uh, we organize these events regularly at NYU and elsewhere. And uh, if you visit our website thomisticinstitute.org you'll find information there's some flyers about upcoming events outside. And just more generally I should mention I think my colleague Father Dominic Legg, mentioned this last time he was here is that the Thomistic Institute is seeking to bring teaching from classical Catholic wisdom, philosophy, and theology into uh, what are typically now secular university environments. And we are trying to create chapters of the Thomistic Institute at college campuses. We're beginning at UVA, NYU here, Columbia, we hope. I hope some of you here are from Columbia and I might speak with you later uh, and are talking to students. We've got a chapter starting at Brown and talking to some students at Harvard and Yale. And so you know, we're interested in bringing Uh, teaching from the traditional Catholic theological tradition into uh, chaplaincies. So if that's something that you're also into university settings, so if it's something you're interested in and you're a graduate student or an undergraduate or just know someone who would be interested in that project, please tell me about it. And please also speak to Beatrice Delgadillo, the program coordinator who's here. And Also, if you want to give us your email address and be on our email list, please give that to Beatrice. I'm going to teach two hours. They're both kind of self-contained. But the, the subject is, why did God become human? Aquinas on the Incarnation. What you have before you are some key texts that we're going to look at. And what I'm kind of trying to teach you to do today is also, it's just a, it can be intimidating to read Aquinas. And I'm going to try to teach you how to kind of read Aquinas on your own. Uh, so this is a, a, a sort of, as it were, throwing you in the pool on the shallow end, we hope. Uh, with some, some float devices, get a, and get us reading. If you already know how to read Aquinas, you'll, you'll still probably, hopefully, enjoy it. I want to explain the structure of the Summa and how the thing is set up real quickly. There are four parts to the Summa Theologiae, what we call the prima pars, the prima secunde, the secunde secunde, and the tertia pars. That's to say, very simply, the first part, the first part of the second part, the second part of the second part, and the third part. The second part divided in two because he had so much to deal with, with regards to human actions. So in the first part, he looks at God, one, and triune, creation, angels, and human beings. And then the second part, the first the prima secunde, he looks at human action, the big picture. And then he goes into detail on specific virtues and vices in the secunda secunde. And then in the last part he treats of Christ and the sacraments. And he died while he was near the end of the treatise on sacraments. We are going to study today the beginning, the very beginning of the Tertia Pars. That's to say the beginning, the first question of the Christology uh, of Aquinas, his thinking about Christ. And in the very first question of the, summa, of the third part of the Summa, he looks at the question, why, did God, the, what, why was it fitting that God should become human? Why did God become human? Now the Summa is divided into questions. Those are kind of the big thematic topics. And then they're composed of articles so like in this questiones, there's, questione, there's one art, there's one question, but it's composed of six articles. So what we would call in English a question is actually an article. You know, every article asks a, a provocative question. And so the six articles compose are six questions that compose this first uh, part of the Summa. In every article, that's subdivided. You could the guy had a mind like you know, an architectural cathedral. In every in every Uh, In every article, you have objections uh, that would answer the question one way, and then the said contra, where that means on the contrary, and it's where he gives an argument from authority. So, for example, on the contrary, the Gospel of St. John says, and that's then shows you where he's going. And then he writes what's called the corpus, or the body of the argument, where he he gives his real answer to the question, and then he responds to objections. Now, when you read the Summa, a lot of times you get overwhelmed by the apparatus. The key is to just read the main question of each article. I've gotten six questions here. And then you look at the corpus. You look at the main answer. And that's what I'm going to do with you today. And then you can look at the objections and the responses. And that can be, that adds something. So, I am starting in this first question of the Summa Theologiae on the second article. The first article, Aquinas asks, was the incarnation fitting? Was it fitting that God should become human? And he gives, um, i do not you don't have the text here, he gives a very contemporary argument. He says, whatever God is, God is utterly transcendent of the human race. And we typically, as human beings, create all kinds of false images and ideas about what God is. Consequently, it's dangerous for God to become human, because then we will... Mistake God for a creature, that's the objection He gives. It will create idolatry, we will confuse a man or a human being for God, something like that. The objection is Muslim or Jewish, it's a medieval objection that the Incarnation is a hindrance to knowing God because it, it makes you lose sight of the transcendence and holiness of God, that He could become human, to become human would banalize our understanding of God. And Aquinas responds in the corpus of that article by saying, the key attribute or property of God under which we should think about the Incarnation is God's supreme goodness. That the Incarnation is a mystery of God's supreme goodness and love, that He should out of solidarity with us become human, become one of us, so that we might know who God is. So Aquinas doesn't deny that God is very transcendent. Mysterious, ineffable, unknown in many ways. High above our comprehension. But he says, because he is all those things, it is supremely fitting and wise that God should become human so that we can, as it were, perceive the human face of God. So that he could, as it were, cross the, 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 the gulf of transcendence and be born in a crib or manger and even suffer a human life like ours, even unto death, and a cruel death of that, in solidarity with us, so that we might see who God is. And this is an expression of God's goodness. So, the argument then is, it is fitting for God to become human. Then he asks a more subtle, that's beautiful, and it makes sense, right? We understand that. If you go to Christmas Mass, you understand, when you look at the child, it's mind-boggling to think God became a baby. But, it is seemingly fitting, because it shows you the deep goodness and mercy of God. But then he asks a more subtle question, a kind of more aggressive theological question. But was it necessary? If God was going to save us, did he have to do it this way? Could God have saved the human race without becoming human? Now that is where you start to get into questions of what salvation is. What is God about? What is he up to in the incarnation? And one of the Things I want to get into in the second lecture today is more about the peculiarities of Christian claims about salvation. I mean that God wants to save the human race, he becomes human, but it's certainly not a magic wand version of salvation where he uh, simply waves away all the evil of human existence as we're all too frequently and punctually reminded there's great moral and physical evil that remains present in the human race and in fact in ourselves. and so. However we understand the Incarnation, uh, it's got to be related to how we understand what God's doing in salvation. Okay, so that's a, giving you a big theme we're going to explore a little bit more today. So when he asks whether the Incarnation was necessary for human salvation, he gives a big kind of prologue here. In his, this, is in, this is the corpus, this is the main answer of the article. And then he's going to talk about two ways the Incarnation has helped us, or why it saved us for furtherance in the good, and for removal from evil, withdrawal from evil. So I'm going to go through it with you. I'm going to actually just read the article and comment on it bit by bit. I answer that a thing can be said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life. That's straightforward. Do you need to eat in order to live? Indeed. Secondly, when the end is attained better and more conveniently, as a horse is necessary for a journey. Now, this is a a joke in a certain way when he says this in a medieval context. Because Dominicans were different from other clergy, diocesan clergy in the Middle Ages, because Dominicans had a rule that they were uh, in fact, to walk everywhere, while other clergy could sometimes ride horses. And it was onerous. It's thought that in Thomas Aquinas' own life, he probably walked 10,000 miles. Uh, and he actually died while walking. It sort of seems that he had a stroke. Um, so, when you say to a, a room full of Dominican friars, it's necessi- there's another kind of necessity in the way it would be necessary to have a horse for a journey. They know it's not very necessary. I mean, in other words, you could, you could, but they know it's very inconvenient to not have a horse. Right? Okay. So, that's just interesting context. In the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. For God, by His omnipotent power, could have restored the human nature nature in many other ways. God could have saved us in any many numbers of creative ways. God is infinite. God is infinitely wise. God has a lot of resources. He has a lot of time on His hands. In fact, when He created time, He made a lot of it, because He's eternal. And He's very patient. But in the second way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. nature. Hence, Augustine says, and he's quoting Augustine as an authority for medieval thinkers, we shall also show that other ways were not wanting to God, he could have done it otherwise, to whose power all things are equally subject, but that there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery. Okay, so Aquinas is making um, a strong version of a weak claim. (laughs) He's saying it's not necessary that God become incarnate to save us. But it is highly fitting, and it's much more... the the word in Latin is conveniens. It means convenient, but it also means highly fitting, uh, highly appropriate. And think about the difference between taking the metro versus walking the island of Manhattan. Right? I mean, you can get there by walking, but mm, much more convenient. To take the Metro. That's sort of the idea. Right? So the incarnation is really uh, kind of moving us along into God in the most expedient, convenient way. Now, he then de- creates what are called like kind of two tables of thinking. One is about the positive advancement in the good, and the second one is about withdrawal from evil. And we're going to go through these because they're very beautiful and they're very profound. And they tie in with Aquinas' sort of deeper vision of salvation and the human personhood. The first thing I want to note to you is that when Aquinas talks, he's going to kind of pursue this thesis, that this is the most convenient way for God to save us. The first thing I want to note is he he starts with the emphasis on the positive. Salvation is about Christ saving us from human sin, but that's interestingly the very last thing that Aquinas is going to say. He's going to talk first about the fact that it's about God Creating the conditions of our happiness, God became a human being so that we could be happy, so that we could be beatified, so that we could live our life with God. So it's it's you know it's just refreshing that the greatest of medieval Catholic theologians should say the primary mystery of salvation is a mystery of God advancing us or moving us upward into life. Mm-hmm. It's that the incarnation is a mystery of God communicating His life of grace to us. So we're going to look at that. Now this may be viewed with respect to our furtherance in the good, how it's fitting. First, with regards to faith, which is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. He means like, who speaks to you in a human voice, with human words. So Augustine says in the City of God, In order that man might journey more trustfully toward the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed a human nature, established and founded faith. Right. So, for, there's lots in the background here. If you were at Father Legg's talk that was a month ago, you know he talked about faith being an enlightenment of the human intellect that allows you to know God personally. The great We're talking about supernatural faith. Supernatural faith is an enlightenment of the mind, it's a grace given into the human intellect that allows us to know who God is. So if I have received baptismal faith, for example, I am able to make an act of faith in Christ as a reality. If I'm sitting around the water cooler and people at the office or at the cafe or in the classroom are saying, you know, these Christians are crazy, they believe all this stuff, some part of me knows that's not right. My sensus fide, the sense of the faithful, is telling me, no, actually, they don't realize Jesus exists or that Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament or that the Church is something real, a real mystery. Right? That Knowledge, that dark but obscure but real knowledge, is knowledge given by grace. And that grace of faith is nourished in us by the presence of Christ among us in the incarnation, and in an especial way because we can, as it were, have living contact with Christ, who has become one of us, who's even present among us mysteriously in his resurrection, in the preaching of the gospel, in the sacraments. It nourishes our faith. And what is faith for? Well, in this life, it's for belief, and in the life to come, it's for vision. The faith is like a tractor beam of the mind, gentle and unviolent, drawing us into the presence of God, so that we can, in the world to come, see God face to face. Faith is already a kind of seeing, it's an intuitive knowledge that allows us to see into the mystery of the Trinity even in this life, in view of vision of the Trinity in the life to come. And so, the Trinity has encouraged us by one of the Trinity becoming one of us. God has taken on our life so that God can communicate His life to us, nourishing our faith. Mm. Okay, So, that's the big idea at the beginning. Secondly, with regards to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened, Augustine says, nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us." Now this is a conversation priests have often. It goes something like this: "Father, given what I've done, it's not possible that God could possibly love me, etc., etc. I am particularly, uh, you know, fallen, ashamed, wicked, have done something wrong, da, da da da. And the priest can simply respond like this, saying, "This is not a theoretical question." The answer to this question has already been given, 2,000 years ago, He died for you on the cross, and so He has died to take away our sins and to restore us to life in Him. All right, so the, crucif- the Incarnation and crucifixion become principle of hope. We can have hope in God in all circumstances of life because God became human and even suffered death and made from that death uh, you know, the, the new creation of resurrection. Julian of Norwich, the 14th century uh, mystic, English mystic, says, The worst possible thing that ever could have happened has happened. We have killed God. And God has drawn from it the best possible thing that might ever be, which is that he's communicated to us eternal life. So we've already done the worst thing we could do, and from that very worst thing we could do, God's already given us the greatest thing he can give. And so there are grounds for hope. Thirdly, with regards to love or charity, the grace of charity poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is greatly enkindled by this, since Augustine says, what greater cause is there of the Lord's coming than to show his love for us? So, the incarnation is to spurn on love. You might say the time of this life, which is a time of trial for Aquinas, is a time of opportunity to love, to choose to love while we're free before the judgment comes, and it's also the, therefore the time to render our lives holy. It's, it's easy to love when, you know, God is right in your face. It's easy to love when everything's going well, but when you're in the middle of armed combat, spiritually speaking, spiritual combat, the choice to love is a new choice every day, and the choice to grow in love is a new choice every day. And so the Incarnation is there to encourage us that Christ has opened for us in this world a way of charity, a way of love, to grow in charity. Then he talks about Christ's example as the fourth reason, that Christ has taught us how we ought to live. That's the notion of um, imitatio Christi in the Latin, the imitation of Christ. It's a thematic work, of course, of Thomas Akempis. That Christ, God became human so that we would have a, an exemplar, an example, an idea of how we ought to live in this world. And fifthly, this is kind of the apex of the whole thing. He's given us faith, hope, and charity. He's encouraged us in faith, hope, and charity to follow the example of Christ so that we might be united with the divinity and participate in the life of God himself. So he says this, fifthly with regards to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss of man and end of human life. Bliss, don't take bliss there too psychologically. He means like the deep spiritual happiness. Of the human being like what really at the depths of ourselves makes us happy is to know God and see God and that's what beatifies that's what means makes us blessed we will be we will be beatified will be blessed in heaven when we see God face to face and so the God became human so that we might become united with God by grace and be beatified blessed Um, and this is bestowed on us by Christ's humanity Augustine says, in a pithy way, God was made man, that man might be made God. Now that's a great theme in ancient Christian thought, specifically uh, in Athanasius of Alexander, Athanasius, uh, Saint Athanasius of the 4th century, who argued that the primary motive of the Incarnation was our divinization. God became man to unite us to God. And the idea here is like, it's, a, it's an idea of fittingness. God could... God could make us blessed by grace without having become human, but if God can become human, He can definitely give us heaven. If you say, well God can't beatify us, you know grace can't really be that real it's it's just too much evil in the world. God can't deal with, cope with it all i mean or if he if he if he wants to cope with it all, he hasn't shown himself very interested to do so, but see if he's become human, then he can right I mean so it's a kind of proportion, an argument from proportion God has done something so disproportionately baffling as to become human that shows us that God can do something uh, that's you know, relatively quote-unquote easier, which is to give us intimate knowledge of God. If God can become human then I can be friends with God. That's kind of the idea. Now he says it's also useful, the Incarnation, for our withdrawal from evil. So he doesn't, it's not Pollyanna, he puts the positive stuff first, then he turns to the remedy of our human condition first because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself nor to honor him who is the author of sin hence Augustine says since human nature is so united to God as to become one person Jesus is the person of the son made man let not these proud spirits of the devils prefer dare dare to prefer themselves to man because they have no bodies Okay this is a very interesting now that this is like really high medieval thinking right we're not usually thinking about the devil and angels and spirits but the idea is really interesting it's that the human being is tempted in our human condition to see our mortality our our physical limitation our physical suffering as a sign of dependency on the spiritual world and therefore to Render honor to the spiritual world in ways that are um, confused, disoriented, and false. In other words, we gen- human beings down through time generate religions. And it's natural, in a way, to be human, to be religious. But Aquinas is saying, but there's a lot of ways human religion goes wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to be polemical, but we saw an aspect, we saw an example of this yesterday. It was very poignant. It's what Aquinas would call superstition serving God in the wrong way. And sometimes it's really the wrong way. And so Aquinas is saying that part of the way that we stop serving the spiritual world wrongly is by, look, is by knowing how to serve God rightly, and the Incarnation has given us as open to the right avenues. He's thinking also of the sacraments, that by becoming human and instituting the Church and the sacraments, God has given us the kind of safe highway of how to approach God in a right way, and it's taught us then to love ourselves. It's also taught us to value our own bodies. One of the mysteries of our life is that we suffer physically and we die. And it's easy to think about the body disparagingly. Now that's not our American culture. Our American culture is the cult of, you know, exercise, human sexuality, the body's good, the body's great, until it isn't. Uh, And then we try to prop it up with medicine and plastic surgery and, you know, a lot of special care, and then eventually we get into mortality, reluctantly. But this is a deeper view of the human body, that the human body can be a place to glorify God. And that that's, that's something that the Incarnations made clear to us. Glorify God in your body. Do not prefer the devil to yourself. God didn't choose to become an angel. He became a human being. So we are special to God, and the human body is special to God. Secondly, because we are thereby taught how great is man's dignity, lest we should soil our human dignity with sin, and so he quotes Pope Leo from the famous Christmas sermon of Pope Leo, which religious and monks read every year, Learn, O Christian, thy worth, and being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. I mean, Pope Leo says, if God became human, you have such value. You have such dignity. He says, Christian, remember your dignity. That's sometimes how it's translated. Christian, remember your dignity. God has become human. So you have incredible dignity. It's a deep view of human dignity. Now, incidentally, just in passing, this was exactly the argument used by another great Pope, John Paul II, in the face of communism in his first encyclical Redemptor Ominis in 1979, where he laid the emphasis on the intrinsic dignity of each human being because of the Incarnation. Because God became human, and so the state can never violate human dignity in the name of a kind of omnipotence of the state. The state is always relative to the mystery of God. This is obviously in the context of the polemics with communism, emphasizing with the Solidarity Movement the dignity of each human being. It's just interesting to see how from Pope Leo in the 5th century to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, to John Paul II in our own time, this powerful idea of theology has been so liberating and so important, even to like very concrete, uh, in very concrete political ways. Thirdly, because in order to do away with man's presumption or, or pride, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ through no merits of who, though no merits of ours went before. I mean, so the incarnation makes it clear if we're saved, it's not because of something we did, it's because of an initiative God has taken. Right? What do you have, St. Paul says, that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? And that is not a humiliating viewpoint, that's a liberating viewpoint from the perspective of gratitude. The idea that I become, by my Christian faith, a being of gratitude, because I've been given so much by God. Right? And so instead of um, thinking of all the things we you know, are limited by, thinking also of all things we've been given. It's a very challenging and, sp- and deep uh, motif. Fourthly, because man's pride, which is the great stumbling block to our clinging to God, can be convinced and cured by humility so great. The great parable of the incarnation is a parable of humility. If you look at Philippians chapter two, it says, "Though he was in the form of God, God did not deem Christ did not deem though he was in the form of God, Christ did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave, taking the form of man, and being in human form." became obedient even unto death. And Paul is commending there in the 2nd chapter of Philippians that we imitate Christ, that he who served in humility, the whole human race, we should seek uh, to imitate in serving one another in humility. So this like parable of deep humility that's a remedy to our uh, erroneous pride. And last, just as he ended the, the, the list of positive goods with the theory of divinization, which is the great Eastern theory of redemption. God became human to divinize us. He ends the list of uh, removals of privations with the great theory of salvation of the West, which is that of St. Anselm uh, in his book, Why Did God Become Human? Cur Deus Omo. It's a famous treatise of St. Anselm for the 11th century. And he gives that. He doesn't name him here, but that's his, it's, he gives the theory here. Fifthly, in order to free man from the enslavement of sin... Which, as Augustine says, ought to be done in such a way that the devil should be overcome by the justice of the man, Jesus Christ. And this was done by Christ atoning for us. Now the word is, put in the English translation here, satisfying, because the word in Latin is satisfactio. But the word satisfactio means like what we might call atonement, making reparation. Christ made reparation for us. Now, he gets in the argument here, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more. Now, a mere man could not have made atonement, or satisfied, for the whole human race, our our sins. But God was not bound to satisfy. I mean, God has no obligation to make atonement to Himself. So, here's the idea. You and I are all very finite, and we are unfortunately marred by original sin, and even, if I may say so, a few personal sins of our own. So, we can't go out and sort of fix the problems of the human race, like you know, God, I volunteer to be pristine for the human race and save humanity. No, it's ridiculous, and even collectively we can't do it because we're we're sort of part of the well, we're sort of part of the problem. If you see what I mean, um, and God doesn't really have any obligation to do it because I mean, God making atonement to Himself as God doesn't make much sense, and so it's fitting. It's not necessary, but fitting that God should become human and as one of us atone for us that God should become our brother, and that he should lead us as the pioneer, so to speak, out of the slavery of sin and into the light of grace. So Christ, God is so merciful that he fixes our human condition from within. That's the idea here. And hence Pope Leo says in the same sermon, weakness is assumed by strength, lowliness by majesty, mortality by eternity in order that one and the same mediator of God and men might die in one, die as man, and rise by the power of his divinity. Unless he was God, he would not have brought a remedy. Unless he was man, he would not have set an example. So because he's human, the idea is because he's human, Christ can atone for our sins as one of us. He sets our human condition right. right? We can point at at least one person and we can say, he has lived as we ought to live. And because he's God, there's something of infinite dignity to his death, to his incarnation, to his act, human life, to his human death. Christ has, there's a kind of infinite holiness to Christ, because he's God, who has lived as a human being, the mystery of obedience and love, there where you and I have failed to love and failed to obey. And so there's a kind of infinite mystery, to our infinite dignity, to the death of Christ, to his life and death. And God doesn't need that, as it were, to, make, to restore the order of justice. But it's a sort of fitting, beautiful way for God to do things. That God looks upon us with such mercy that He gives us His own justice. He clothes us in His own justice so that we can partake of His own righteousness. So the idea here is not that God had to fix things by becoming just on our part. He had to become just on our behalf because otherwise, um, He just couldn't really have looked at us with any mercy. It's like, okay, first, first things, I've got I've to set things straight with justice, and then we'll talk about mercy on the wretched human race. No, it's the opposite. It's that God has such mercy on the human race that He doesn't just save us out of mercy. He's, he's so merciful that He saves us in justice. He becomes one of us, and then He communicates to us justification. The grace of justification. And we're justified by faith, hope, and charity. So when we live in faith in Christ, in hope in Christ, and in love of Christ, we partake of Christ's own justice, his own grace as man. And we follow him, the pioneer of our life in God. We follow Christ uh, into righteousness. All right, I'm going to just finish this first talk. I'm going to open up the questions about six or seven minutes. But I'm just going to finish this first talk by looking at another, um, what's actually, I have it as Roman numeral number two, but as it says on the sheet, it's actually article three. Okay, that's very beautiful, St. Thomas Aquinas. You have all these good reasons that it's fitting that God should become human to save us. But would God have become incarnate had human beings never fallen into sin? Is the incarnation itself primarily oriented towards our salvation? Or... Would God have become incarnate had we never sinned? Now that sounds like a you know kind of purely hypothetical question, but what Aquinas is trying to get at is this issue. Did God create the world from the beginning in view of the incarnation? Did God make everything in order to become incarnate, so he would have done it anyway? And as it were, he's now done it in a way that completes creation and redeems us from sin? Or did God create the world for some other reason, and then, because we sinned, become incarnate. Now, this is a famous theological argument, down to the ages, and I'm sure some of you know that there's a famous dispute here. Duns Scotus argues famously against Aquinas that God created in order to become incarnate, and would have become incarnate anyway. So the incarnate, that God made the world in order to become incarnate, and many people, many people hold this view. I mean, it's a totally permitted view in Catholic theology, and many people see the incarnation of Christ as sort of the the center of the universe. The kind of monstrance, you know, just like we look at a monstrance, there's the Holy Eucharist there. Like, the, the whole universe is a sort of monstrance in which Christ's incarnation shines through as the centerpiece of all creation. And God intended it ever so from the beginning. That's a beautiful idea. But Aquinas does not think the purpose of the, incarnation, of the of the creation was the Incarnation. He does not think the central mystery of creation is the Incarnation. Doesn't that sound impious? What could it possibly be then? Aquinas thinks the central mystery of the creation is the Trinity. And that God created us not in order to become human, but in order to give us God. God created us so that we could see God face-to-face and know the Trinity. And it's because we failed in the first instance to correspond to the, you might call it, to the heights of that calling that then God descended into the depths of our condition so that we could be re-elevated into the life of the Trinity. That's also really beautiful. These are, this is the privilege of studying theology. You get into be- conundrums between competing visions of the beauty of God's work. Cardinal Cajetan figured out the answer to all this, in my opinion. But uh, I'll come to that in a minute. So, let me just read the Corpus article, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you some thoughts. Now, Aquinas does not say things quite so bluntly as I just said them. He says, I answer that. There are different opinions about this question. For some say that even if man had not sinned, the Son of Man would have become incarnate. Others assert the contrary, and seemingly our assent ought rather to be given to this opinion. Now, notice he's cautious. He doesn't say it's just straightforward. He says, I think it's probably the latter view. Now he's going to try to justify that. For such things as spring from God's will and beyond the creature's due, or what what God owes us, you might say, can be known to us only through being revealed in sacred scripture, in which the divine will is made known to us. So what he's saying is first is like, how do we know the answer to this question anyway? What God would have done had we'd never sinned? We have to look at sacred scripture. Because we don't have like access behind the veil to go back into God's mind and know what he would have done in a hypothetical counterfactual. You know, well, you know, if I were God, I would have become incarnate anyway. So no, we don't have that kind of knowledge. You don't have access. So what does scripture teach you? What does God reveal to you? He says, hence, since everywhere in the sacred scripture, the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason for the incarnation, it is more in accordance with this to say that the work of the incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin, so that had sin not existed, the incarnation would not have been. Okay, so he's saying, if you look at the motives of the incarnation as in St. Paul and in scripture, it seems... That what scripture teaches is that God became man because of our, our, to redeem us, to save us. And incidentally, that's in the creed. For us men and for our salvation, he became man. All bow their head. Right. Right. That's the creed saying that the motive of the incarnation is to save us from sin. So Augustine, I mean Aquinas is on some pretty strong ground there. But then he adds this thought. And yet, the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. So he does leave it open, he says, well, God could have become incarnate if he'd wanted at the heart of the creation, but it seems from Scripture, from what we can tell, that he did it in order to save us. So it's very epistemologically humble. He's just saying we can't absolutely know, but it seems likely from Scripture to say that this is the the more probable position. I'm just going to finish by mentioning to you that historically, this is sometimes called the conflict between the Franciscan school and the Dominican school, because lots, most typically Franciscans follow Scotus in thinking the Incarnation is the, God, would become, the, God created in order to become incarnate. And Dominicans defend the, the tradition that I've elaborated, that God created us for knowledge of the Holy Trinity and then descended in our condition to save us, to elevate us back up into life in the Trinity. But that being said, that's complicated. Saint Bonaventure, contemporary of Thomas Aquinas, held that God became incarnate, uh, in order to save us. And Bonaventure is, of course, a great, one of the great Franciscans. Albert the Great, Dominican, professor who taught Thomas Aquinas, held that God became incarnate uh, as the central uh, motive of the, of the creation, that God would have become incarnate anyway. So uh, actually Aquinas is agreeing with his contemporary Bonaventure and disagreeing with his teacher, uh, Albert the Great. So it, the, the inner debate is even inside the Orders, so it's not just Francis versus Dominicans. And Cajetan, uh, Cardinal Cajetan was great, probably the greatest Catholic theologian of the 16th century. Debated with Luther, uh, was one one of the people to revise the study of Aquinas in the early Renaissance period. And a, and a Cajetan has a beautiful. Th- he he debated a lot with Scotists on this issue, in, in, incidentally. And has. A be- I'll finish with his idea, which is very beautiful. Kajitian starts with Aquinas' idea. Yes, God became, from what we can see in Scripture, and from the fitting arguments that Aquinas gives, we can see that God created us for knowledge of the Trinity, and when we fell, became a human being to unite us with Him once again, and to save us from sin. So the motive of the Incarnation, the reason God became human, is for our salvation. And there's no reason to think necessarily that God would have become incarnate had we not sinned, but... When God does become incarnate, He glorifies the universe more than it ever would have been had He not become incarnate. And so, in a certain way, what we see God doing is making use even of our failures and of our shortcomings in God's infinite mercy to give us a yet greater bestowal of grace than He would have had we never fallen. So there's a certain way in which God makes use of the fault to go further in mercy and show us His ever-greater goodness, even to the point of making the universe more beautiful, in some respects at least, and more profoundly attuned to God by the mystery of the Incarnation, completing, in a certain way, fulfilling the creation from within. So that's an interesting position that says that, in a certain way, what God has given us in the Incarnation and in Christ is greater than what God would have given us it's in some ways greater for God to become a human being than, if, than what would have happened in the first creation had we never sinned. Yeah. And so God's mercy is creative. It's a very interesting view.